We've talked about the Church of the Holy Rood in Scotland, where it is believed that they have a small piece of the cross that Jesus Christ himself was crucified on. It helps them feel closer to him and gives them hope that he will be closer to them because of this special artifact. The chains that are believed to have been those that bound St. Peter are in a church in Rome called St. Peter in Chains. It draws many tourists because of this relic. But did you know that the actual human remains of saints, or even partial remains, are even kept in Catholic churches around the world in hopes of having special happenings and even miracles occur there? There is the severed head of St. Catherine in the Basilica of Siena, where you can see her somewhat mummified head in a glass case. Then there is the preserved heart of St. Camillus of Venice that is kept in Naples in a heart-shaped case. And even the preserved body of Hyacinth of Caesarea in Bavaria, she is decked out in an amazing beaded gown and diadem in a gold and glass coffin for visitors to see her. Creepy, right? And St. John the Baptist's head is believed to be in numerous locations. Are any of them his? Today, we will dig a little into what lies beneath saints and relics with medieval historian Dr. Matt Panessi. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Friends and Tapophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. We have another episode of Interview with a Tapophile, a great chance to talk to others that are drawn to cemeteries and history. Today, we have Matt, who has graciously agreed to talk with us about medieval history and, in particular, his research and studies in regards to Catholic saints and relics. We're getting serious about history. We're talking to Matt, who is a professor of history at Ohio Dominican University. Welcome, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's so awesome to finally get to talk to you. Well, and thanks for having me on and speaking on the subjects from a medieval perspective. Honestly, kind of steer me, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to respond to anything that you have to ask. Well, we will take it all. We like the lighthearted and we like to go deep and dark as well. So it's all good. Do you mind sharing with us kind of your prior education and about your teaching? I grew up in Toronto. I was a very lazy student. I went to the university in town, the University of Toronto. Uh 
and I think I was kind of on the law school track right from the beginning. Oh. That's kind of my parents encouraged it. So I initially did every subject under the sun and did mm. poorly at it. And the only subject that I chose for myself, not because of any expectation someone else put right. on me, was a medieval history course. So every semester I had a medieval history course, and that was the only class I was getting an A in. Everything else was <laughs> mediocre at best. So around my third year in university, my junior year, as they uh -huh. would say here in the States, I decided, you know what? I think I should be more strategic. Let's just yeah. do medieval history. But I didn't do it because I saw a career in medieval history. I did it to get into law school, just to up my GPA, <laughs> to up my grades. And, and it worked. It worked. My grades went up and I did the law school admission test. But then something kind of finally clicked. If I'm doing well at this subject, maybe that's sort of saying yeah. something to me. And so I just stayed in the city and I did my master's and PhD there and concentrated on the early Middle Ages and fell in love with the Latin language. Wow. And finally came, came down to Ohio because they were looking for somebody to teach in these areas at Ohio Dominican. It's a small liberal arts university in Columbus, and Ohio. And so that's your favorite area of study. And you kind of just fell into that, but it sounds like you had a love for that. It's hard for me to kind of pinpoint a time when I fell mm -hmm. in love with the Middle Ages. I would always travel to Europe. I have lots of family still in Europe, especially in Britain. We would go and see relatives every other year. And my father, just to get us out of my grandparents' hair, would take us on all of these journeys around Ireland oh. and Wales. But what frustrated me was my father, all he was interested in were the hills <laughs> and the dales and the moors, and which, which are right. beautiful absolutely kind of pristine and yeah. mystical in their own right but i remember once watching a home video and my father who prided himself as an amateur videographer he would do these long sweeping pans <laughs> of the vista it would be beautiful and you would just see these rugged hills and mountains and valleys and rivers running through it and then you'd see, off into the distance, this ruin of a Cistercian oh. abbey. And my eyes, my eyes would just light up. But my father, his pen <laughs> wouldn't stop. He kept going. It's as if it didn't even register. I'd say, Dad, why didn't you zoom in on that? Or, or better yet, why didn't you take us down to that? He was oh, not interested wow. in the buildings and the material okay. culture and the history. He was interested mm -hmm. in the landscape. So I remember from an early age always being frustrated with that. You know, there's hills and flowers, you know, in North America. Uh, you know, if I'm going to Europe, I want to yes. connect with the history there. Right from an early age, I had that love. You know, I was very late to falling mm. in love with reading. And when I finally mm. did, but I went from Archie Comics right to <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It's so typical for a medievalist to say this, but fell in love with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and that, I guess, was enough to direct me to my current I know profession. that you do research as part of your job as well, right? Is that... Mm -hmm. Exactly. So while Ohio Dominican is mostly focused on teaching, and there's definitely for all professors a research expectation, and when I got into medieval history, 
I didn't want to see a student in front of me. Mm -hmm. It was all about the research. And I still love research. When it comes to my profession, I got in it to do research. I wanted to investigate. I wanted to discover new things. So I imagined that I would be in a dusty library somewhere surrounded by manuscripts (laughs) with, you know what, better yet, add some dripping candles. (laughs) You know, these are things modern libraries wouldn't have even close to the material, but they're going to ruin my romantic image of it. But the moment I stepped foot in the classroom and started teaching, that's where my true passion is. Yeah, and that's what I think, you know, I'm much better at doing. So Ohio Dominican, definitely uh, the teaching is the priority. But, you know, I still do research and I still publish and my specialty is early medieval history. I study early medieval monastic education. So I look at the experience of monks in a classroom and I look at how is knowledge transmitted. So that's kind of what my focus is when it comes to research. Okay, that is really interesting. This is part of why I do the podcast is that I just think People's lives are interesting. I love their stories and I love cemeteries. And I just found as I went to cemeteries and then I would see maybe an interesting stone or an epitaph or something that would just make me think, huh, I want to know more about this person or this place or, you know, what happened here. And I'm always joking that I write a research paper every week, you know, as I do the podcast. So I just dig in and look online and get books and I love it. Right, and and this is why I like the podcast format. It's quite common for researchers to sit on a pile of research and never actually get it Uh developed and communicated to the world. When the new media, the new formats allow you to communicate rapidly to people Mm -hmm. and get information out there. Obviously, research and proper research and crossing your T's and dotting I's and and cross-referencing and getting your sources and citations lined up is absolutely important. And many more academics are seeing the utility of podcasting formats and other social media to communicate and to, to connect to a wider audience. That's actually one of the greatest things about this you know i never dreamed my audience would be larger than my classroom Mm -hmm. but you know social media allows you to kind of just you know sky's the limit but hagiography it just means the life of a saint i look at the history of christianity but what's interesting when i teach especially i love the transition from the late roman empire to the early christian middle ages A lot of historians would draw a a really kind of definitive line between those two ages. You know, fall of Rome, you go from highly civilized to immediately barbaric, which is absolutely not what (laughs) happened. And even when it comes to religious customs, burial practices, and the culture of death, there's a lot of similarities. When I originally wondered, what what could I offer? What could I talk about this, this subject? The Middle Ages, in fact, more than the Middle Ages, the Classical Age as well, death was on people's minds mm-hmm. all the time. And not for the reason that some might assume today. When you think of the Middle Ages and you watch the Monty Python movies, which, by the way, I love, I will never say a word, you know, against Monty Python (laughs) and the Holy Grail. 
our assumptions is that people's life expectancies were were exceedingly short that mm-hmm. there was disease that there was war that there was famine that people were dying all the time and then they were chucking bodies into the street to be disposed of in mass graves and and obviously in the news there's been a lot of focus on what's the black death and what's pandemic and and how did they mm-hmm. deal with that how did they deal with the increase in um, mortality etc yeah we assume that's the reason why people had death on their mind but in another sense people in history i think were less distracted by a lot of the things we're distracted by in this life we have our jobs mm-hmm. we have our technology and i think our modern culture right. does its best to distance ourselves from the natural cycles of the world and our human yes. experience like the human experience necessarily involves death i mean the the word mortal like you yes. know the ancients when when trying to kind of define what it means to be human one of the first definitions was mortal it means we die the gods don't die you know that's that's definitively mm. human or definitively what it means to live in this world they were so connected with nature you know whether whether you're yeah. roman whether you're christian whether you were you know norse whether you were indian whether you were chinese the rhythm yeah. of your life revolved around nature and it's interesting the mm-hmm. romans for instance if you think of what month we're about to enter uh well september you know means the seventh month well it's not our seventh month it's our ninth month how did they mistake this like december <laughs> decimal that's our 10th that that means the 10th month but we know it's 12 yeah. with the romans just miscalculating well actually the first two months of the year didn't get names it was considered the dead time it was the time where planet was sort of at a sleep mm. and they didn't even kind of assign it names early on if you look at even the egyptians and if you look at in in the americas in mesoamerica and you look at kind of the ziggurats and you mm-hmm. you look at how they are kind of displayed and organized very much kind of connected to the rhythm of nature and that involves life and death i mean it's right. the cycle so even before yeah. you know my specialty is the history of christianity and christianity is very brings a, a sort of a new way of looking at things but people in history generally were connected with death as a very natural part of their experience and an important part of their experience almost all civilizations didn't see death as an end it was a transition you know and so this mm-hmm. this connects to mm-hmm. the reason why humans even before recorded history buried the dead we buried the dead because we saw there was something mm-hmm. unique special about humans it's not just a sanitary practice mm. you know we're not just kind of pushing bodies away yeah. because they corrupt and they may sort of bring disease etc we bury the dead because we think there's something sacred right. about this and that there's a transition I've to the afterlife I've talked several times on the podcast along the same line of also what we see on headstones and how that reflected kind of how they felt about death during that time whether it's mm-hmm. death's head yeah. or skull and crossbones and and those kinds of things and the things they would write on the headstones and how kind of that changed as we've 
come right. forward to angels and cherubs and there's a definite switch Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And, and as much as some could argue that, well, an angel is as much kind of a sign of things to come as a skeleton. Yes. I mean, they're just different stages that are aimed at the same thing, I yeah. guess. But you're right. Even if you look at the cross or the crucifix in Christianity, I mean, you can't get a more vivid association of death, a painful death, you know, a, a torturous death. The religion of Christianity, it centers around death. In fact, early Christians, some weren't content to wait to die. They wanted their salvation right away. They wanted to kind of emulate Jesus. And, and the ultimate act, the ultimate act in, in the religion of Christianity um, was that Jesus was sacrificed. And so a lot of early Christians saw death as the mm. quickest way to achieve their salvation by mm -hmm. emulating what Jesus did on the cross. And so you have, in, in under the Romans, because Christianity was persecuted, you have Christians lining up, triumphantly declaring themselves to be Christian, going to mm. the Colosseum or lining up before the emperor or the guards and welcoming them. I see a lot them. of that too, like at cathedrals. You'll have even like a cherub holding a skull mm -hmm. <laughs> you know right there's just so many interesting things around this so many examples right it, it must have been amazing for someone in the middle ages who of course many people were illiterate but a lot of people were not and you know they would go into these magnificent buildings and they'd look around what must they have thought because yeah, well, there's lots of Christian iconography. There's lots of other stuff on the walls. <laughs> and too. even pagan as well. Right. But they're there for a reason. I mean, yes, a lot of it may have been allegorical and there might have been lessons there. A lot of it might have just been decorative. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it might have just been kind of to beautify the place. You know, we, we often forget art is, is meant to uplift. Now, some of the stuff in the cathedrals, you know, with the, the grotesques and the drolleries, and I, I don't exactly see them being beautiful. I think it, it's a reminder to humans that the world we live in is an imperfect world, and, it, and it's meant to have us set our sights on something higher. And again, death is that transition, and that's all around. That's just all around the, the skulls, the skeletons, the the vicious scenes of violence that you wouldn't expect to be in a place ostensibly about peace. I wish I could kind of tap into the brain of just the average medieval churchgoer <laughs> and ask them what they think. But, you know, another thing is yeah. they, the, these small communities, you know, when, when death occurred, they would write down the names of people who had died. These names would be read on the anniversaries of their death or at times of the year where there might be a, a particular feast day like uh, All Souls mm -hmm. Day or All Saints Day. They were definitely mm -hmm. connected, you know, they, they and they yeah. sought connections to the afterlife. I said mm -hmm. that I um, grew up in Canada, well, just a few hours away from Toronto in the north is a shrine that was the site of the martyrdom of these Jesuit missionaries, they were martyred by the Iroquois or Iroquois Indians. Mm -hmm. So there's this shrine. And I remember even as a kid going to this shrine and you would walk into this wooden church 
they forbade candles in this church. You would think uh -huh. of church candles. They're synonymous. They forbade candles because this church would, would light up like, you know, tinder. But at the back of the church, and I thought this was the most gruesome thing, it wasn't their relics. Now, a relic is the physical remains of a saint or holy person. Mm -hmm. And they have those aplenty. Like they have, they have yes. shrines where you could see, yes. you know, the finger bone of this particular saint or, you know, and, and we could talk a lot <laughs> about that in a yes. second. But I do remember at the shrine at the back of the church on the wall, and it was the creepiest thing. It's still there to some degree. There would be crutches and canes and casts people who got who would go to the shrine and pray for healing and oh. received it and they would leave their medical devices but this goes back decades some of these you know medical aids i guess they would be attached to the wall to the point that there would be hundreds of these things and i remember as a kid always being creeped out thinking it's the most gruesome thing these are ratty old crutches with like linen wraps falling <laughs> off them going back to the subject of saints well in the middle ages you know the early modern period and to the the current time people believe that by visiting the place where these holy men and women died that somehow they could receive god's they received a miraculous healing or moment and if the people go and can pray and ask for their intercession so to speak that's right it's exactly that there is a bishop who's called gregory of tours he's a sixth century bishop in what the place we call france today okay. in gaul and he wrote a chronicle of french kings the, they were called the merovingian kings it's very political his history until it's not because peppered through peppered through this history are these random stories of miracles and really i do mean random one of my favorite ones is is about a man who is betrothed to a woman who he had never met and and this was quite right. common marriage oftentimes was done to join families together the neither the man nor the woman had much of a say in it especially right. in the nobility if in fact yeah your family you noble, did all that be prepared to be unsatisfied in your love life or at least your marriage <laughs> life, uh, because that marriage wasn't necessarily about love at that level um and so on their wedding day and of course the man doesn't get to see his bride the bride is veiled they get married, they don't even exchange a word, they don't really even see each other even though they're standing in front of each other. And they get back to their bridal chamber, and don't worry, this podcast is rated G, I won't, <laughs> you know. Um, but the man finally lifts the veil of his mm -hmm. new bride and sees that Aww. she's weeping. And he's like, why are you sad? This is a day to celebrate. And the woman is like, I'm weeping for the fate of my soul. I am forever damned because of this marriage. And the man's confused. He's like, well, why is that? She said, I vowed myself to God. I vowed my virginity to God. But now since I'm marrying you and I didn't have a choice, I'm vowed to consummate my marriage. The, the man and woman both had to consummate their marriage or it wasn't a valid marriage. She said, if I don't consummate my marriage with you, I'm going against my marital vow and I'll be damned. Yeah. But 
if I do, I'm going against my original vow to, to preserve God. my virginity, and and I'm doomed. So you know, I'm I'm damned either way, and that's why I'm weeping. You asked, right? And so the man <laughs> says, well, what if I don't require you to consummate the marriage? Why don't we just live as man and wife, as almost like brother and sister? And the woman's like, but I can't expect you to do that. And he says, well, I'll choose to do that. And so that's exactly what they did. And so they lived. In fact, they grew to love each other and respect each other and had such a fondness for each other. They became an example of what true love Aww. is. And one of the most beautiful things, I'm sort of a romantic, <laughs> so. No, I am too. <laughs> In fact, they lived quite long. Their reputation became known far and wide. And when the man was in his 80s, he passed away. The woman died within Aww. 24 hours. I think people have done studies on this. This kind of happens more often than we know. They died so close together. Like, so was their love for each other. Well, a monastery down the road asked the family of both of these individuals, could we have the bodies? Can we bury them? You know, you might wonder, well, why would a monastery do this? Well, one of the things monks did is they prayed and they wanted to, as a testament to this man and woman, they would remember the man and woman in their prayers every day. Another thing when it comes to saints and burial, where these bodies are buried brings right. tourism, brings donations, yeah. brings people. So there might have been another many reasons why the monastery wanted the bodies. So. The bodies were sent to the monastery and they made a sarcophagus for them. Uh, it was uh -huh. more like a chamber. The bodies were washed and cleaned and wrapped in linen and then they were put in uh -huh. a wooden coffin. They weren't interred in the ground, they were interred in mm -hmm. the chamber. They, they lit candles and put flowers and then they said prayers in the chamber and then they sealed the chamber and the monks they left the woman on one side of the chamber and the, the husband uh -huh. on the other. The next day, one of the novices had to come and clean out the chamber. And when this young monk opened the chamber, the coffins that had been lying on either end of the chamber miraculously were Aww. side by side in the center. They had just miraculously moved. I said that in a previous podcast that now we don't have to have really much of anything to do with the death process or what happens after someone can come to the hospital or your home, take away your loved one, do everything. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to see them again if you don't feel comfortable right. with seeing a dead right. body. You don't have mm -hmm. to. And they will dig the hole. They will lower them in. You walk away. They fill it up. Back in the day where someone died and you did everything. You washed their body. You took care of them. You wrapped them. You clothed them. People came in. They came to visit and they looked at them laid out on right. the kitchen table mm -hmm. and talked about them and their life. Then placed them in a, you know, in a coffin or wrapped them and dug the hole, you laid them in, you shovels, everybody put the dirt back in. I mean, you were part of all of that. And I think that makes a lot of us even more, not really myself, but I think a lot of people 
afraid of dead bodies, of the cemeteries, of Mm -hmm. having anything to do with that because we're so far removed from it in these days. They had a much better concept of death and what happens in oh you're you're absolutely right i've had death in my life unfortunately i still see death as tragic you know not of course and yeah, it is of course when you love someone and they depart you know it is tragic that'll always be the case you know even even but my then. family growing up you know this isn't medieval at all but uh, <laughs> but i do remember you know when a family member died and this would be the on the italian side of my family the wake would would go on many evenings and and the open casket would just be there and here i am some like six-year-old boy seven-year-old boy i'm like yeah we're just letting this body kind of stay here while everyone else seems to be partying and (laughs) and it's quite a party and every night brought new people and it was just the biggest social get together yeah by the end of it you know i'd have to say it, it was an extremely healthy process and you know, I think the more we kind of sanitize it and the more we distance ourselves and it becomes very clinical and we're removed from it I don't think that's necessarily helping the grieving process I agree so I, I definitely get what you say you know I still kind of hold it as far away from me as possible but history right. teaches us that the process of yeah death the, the burial practices may have had very much a psychological purpose as well. It helped people deal with it, so. I agree, it did. It helped them to have that time to grieve and to say goodbye. I think nowadays, someone's just kind of ripped out of your life and you never have anything to do with that again. I think, like you said, psychologically, that's a lot harder than if you had to help do all of those things and have those moments of saying goodbye. I had a friend a couple years ago, I had this older lady friend. She was 92, cutest, just funniest, sassy little lady. And I'd go over and visit her and Mm -hmm. I became like her best friend because she was kind of shut in and and, uh, I would take little activities and things to do with her whatever and we would talk and we got to be really good friends even though we're like 40 years apart in age but when she passed away her daughter asked me if I would like to go help dress her for burial and help with her hair and makeup and one of the things that I always did for her was paint her fingernails and she had a specific color that she loved and always did and she said would you like to do her nails And I said, sure. And so I got my fingernail painting stuff and went to the mortuary and we helped dress her body and she'd had her hair done already, but they worked on her makeup and and I did her nails. And there just was something about that, doing that little service for this dear friend who, you know, and it's obvious when you're with a body that they are not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their spirit is gone. It is not the same. It is just that shell, so to speak, that glove off of the hand that's been removed. And doing that service and holding that hand that used to be warm and moving in my hand and working on her nails, um, it was kind of that way for me to say goodbye and do this last 
little service for yeah. her so that she would, you know, look beautiful and that she could go to her rest in that way. And and I think that having those kinds of experiences makes me not as afraid. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit now about some medieval burial practices. Since you're the medievalist and we've got you here, let's get your take on what burial practices were like during that time and kind of where and how. Well, and it's a really interesting question and it's not my area of expertise, but the way I'm going to approach it, and th this is something that I thought was really interesting. Way back when I was in college, my degree was in medieval studies, not medieval history. So medieval studies meant that it was a little more interdisciplinary and I had to take two art history courses. Oh, I kind of yeah. dreaded this because I honestly, <laughs> I didn't know what art history was. And I didn't know if ah. it would be looking at paintings or manuscripts, which of course that's involved. But the two courses I took to satisfy this requirement, one was called the Gothic Cathedral, oh. which I have to say was amazing. Like it was so phenomenal. I loved every oh, I would love that. second of it. And the other course taught by the same prof was called the medieval city medieval city how does what does that have to do with art well we looked at the development of cities in the middle ages and we spent a lot of time looking at modern day city plans and i remember the final exam and the final exam the professor would give us the map of a modern day city based on the layout we had to write the history of the city. We, and we didn't even know what city it was. Oh, wow. Based on the street organization. And I just thought this was the coolest type of, like, it, it was almost like CSI, you know? It was really investigative. Yeah. And so one of the principles I learned from this course that I still remember, of course, if you look at the center of a city, a, a medieval city at least, and there's a grid-shaped formation, uh -huh. It means that the city was originally a Roman foundation because the Romans had this like grid-shaped layout with the forum in the middle and residential districts outside, etc. Okay. So if you saw a grid shape somewhere in the city, it meant there was a Roman foundation. But if you saw winding streets that were laid over this grid-shaped formation, that tended to kind of veer all towards kind of an external center. It meant this was a Roman city that continued on into the Middle Ages and had like a medieval development. Okay. You think to yourself, and, and I'm going to get to the burial practice in, in a second. What's yeah. going on here? Well, it had to do with the fact that Romans originally, when it came to burial practices, practiced cremation. They did not believe mm. in interment or burial for the most part. Obviously, it went kind of uh, back and forth. But mm -hmm. in Christianity, it was believed that the body will rejoin the soul in the afterlife and yeah. that it would need to it needs to be preserved. Right. So and Romans forbade Christians, in fact, forbade any burial within the city walls because it was believed to be unsanitary and unhygienic. So oh. if you were burying anyone, it would be in 
grave plots, caves, whatever it happens to be, catacombs outside the city walls. Oh. Well, Christians didn't have this same problems with sanitation. Right. And what tended to happen was, in the Middle Ages, cemeteries and were placed right beside the church. The yeah. prayers of the church, the connection between the, the praying for the dead, the, the need, you know, in Christianity. Or underneath the floor. That's right. So so if, if you were wealthy enough, you would have this sort of intermural, right, like within the walls, you know, you would be buried in the floor of the church or in mm-hmm. the walls of the church. And you might even be, you know, at a minor altar, you know, of yeah. the church, depending on the life you live. But if you were from the middle classes or if you were poor, it was likely you'd be buried in the churchyard. Yeah. And because the church was the, the central space in your life, everything mm-hmm. revolved around the church. Right. Nowadays, no matter what denomination you are, and I don't want to speak for anyone, I'll speak for my kids because I know them. You know, if I say, okay, time to go to church, oh, the rolling of the eyes and dragging of the feet, and oh, it's going to be so tedious. <laughs> I'm not here to say it wasn't tedious back then. <laughs> A service inside the church wasn't just all the church did. The church was your social planner. The church was the place where feasts were thrown. And there would be, just like today, bake sales, festivals. And keep Mm -hmm. in mind, in the church, there's like a feast almost every day. There were a lot of holidays in the Middle Ages. And there were things to do. There were different foods associated with the different holidays. You know, if you're Christian today, it might be all about Christmas. Well, in the Middle Ages, I'm not saying it was Christmas every day, and I'm not saying people got gifts, but (laughs) there was something interesting going on. Actually, one of the coolest things around September, the Feast of St. Michael. The Feast of St. Michael, that was the time where debts were supposed to be settled. It was kind of a feast, you know, associated with like some financial transactions, but it was also (laughs) associated with... St. Michael was responsible for ousting Lucifer from heaven and casting him down. While Lucifer, Mm -hmm. according to legend, fell on a blackberry bush. So this is your last day for you to eat blackberries on St. Michael's Day. And so you would likely have some sort of pie. Uh. You would have a big goose because there would be a big meal, you know, celebrating kind of the end of the fiscal year. I kind of love the fact that, you know, in the Middle Ages... There was something different going on, something interesting, something kind of a community. We love to get together for a potluck. Yeah, right? (laughs) So going back to that medieval city course, if you follow the winding streets, they all converge on where the church is and where the churchyard is, where the cemetery is. People would have connected. You don't go into church without passing that cemetery. And when you're there, you are reminded to pray for the dead. I love the fact that this is sort of inseparable, that your your spiritual yeah. life is so connected to the past and connected to the people who have passed on. And yeah. it's believed, on the one hand, that you were encouraged to pray for the dead because, according to belief, Salvation wasn't necessarily instantaneous. There was an understanding mm-hmm. at the time and still today in purgatory. So you would pray for the dead. But at the same time, also, you would pray for intercession. You know, saints don't have power. People who have died don't have power. 
but they can connect you more efficiently, maybe, to God's right. grace. There are very few medieval cemeteries still in existence today. Right. It is very rare to come across a grave of a person who died in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. The thing is, space was limited. Towns grew up around cities. Cemeteries were very small, but you would always want to be buried in hallowed ground. You would mm -hmm. want to be sure that you would be remembered in the masses for the dead. The priests would come out and bless the cemetery at times during the year. It was very important for you to be interred in the church cemetery. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there was no space. Yeah. And so what typically happened was, again, as a non-expert, this kind of came as a shock to me. You must be very familiar with this practice. Yeah. But people dug up previous bodies. Yes, they did. And put them in charnel houses and ossuaries and catacombs. They yeah. relocated bodies all the time. To us nowadays, that just sounds like, yeah, you know, like the freakiest thing, like, you dug them up and then you, where did you stick them? What did you do right. with it? The only time people should be digging up graves is on all of the crime stories that I'm watching on television <laughs> when forensics miss something. Right. But otherwise, leave the dead to rest in peace. Exactly. And then you go to Paris and you go to a catacomb and I mean, wow, it's just yeah. miles of bones. And, and these aren't, these aren't bodies kept together either. You know, no. here's all the femurs and here's yes. all the skulls. And again, that sort of seems to conflict with my notion of, well, if burial is important and treating the dead with respect, well, and right. here you're, you're rearranging a bunch of bodies into some art form. Yeah. And sometimes I find it difficult to reconcile all of that. But no, people would be dug up quite frequently to make room for somebody who is newly passed away. Yeah, they had to figure out what to do, and that was the best that they could come up yep. with. And they did the best they could. <laughs> and another interesting facet of this, because originally I thought the relocation of the dead was a rare occurrence. Well, going back to the topic of saints, it actually wasn't, because churches mm -hmm. were very desirous to get the big saints, you know, housed yeah, in their right. shrines. It brought a lot of attention to the church. It brought a lot of donations to the church. It brought a lot of graces to, to the church to have relics of a very important saint. There were fights over bodies all the time. One uh. of the biggest fights, it's almost like an adventure story. If you've been to Venice, where the big plaza is, the, the patron saint of Venice, I believe, is Saint Mark in the Middle Ages, the city of Venice wanted the remains of St. Mark, and they right. were currently being housed in Alexandria, uh, and this is in the 9th century, and Alexandria and Egypt had come under the authority of an Islamic caliphate. Well, two merchants journeyed to Alexandria on the pretense of trade, and in the middle of the night stole the remains of St. Mark and <gasps> brought them back to Venice. And Whoa. as a young medieval historian, I would encounter documents that talked about saints' translations, the translation of a saint. And I'm like, translation? That sounds so boring. Translation. <laughs> oh. it put me to sleep. Well, translation really means re like relocation. That's what the word translation means. They relocated their bones yeah. or their body. And there would be cities would feud over these. St. Martin of Tours. Well, St. Martin 
when he was sick at the end of his life, was journeying between Tours, the city of Tours in France, and Poitiers. And uh-huh. where he died, they built a shrine and a church. Well, Tours wanted yeah. St. Martin. Poitiers wanted St. Martin. And they had this big, huge feud. And I also think, according to this story, eventually it was decided not through arbitration. One side just was quicker to steal the body out from under the nose of the other. So (laughs) there's some pretty fascinating tales with getting these physical remains. And oftentimes when it happens, of course, it doesn't do to say, oh, well, come visit the Shrine of St. Martin. Were it not for our great theft 30 years ago, we wouldn't have him here today. <laughs> Oftentimes, a miracle conveniently happens where where the saint would appear in a vision and declare where they wanted to have their body uh, remain. So, oh, yeah, that's yeah. handy. <laughs> Rest assured, there's uh, these things have gone through kind of the rigorous uh, verifying process. So. Well, and also, isn't there quite the black market trade and then trying to verify if things are real or not? I mean, there's a lot of things that say, oh, we have a splinter of the cross or we have a thorn (laughs) of, you know, the crown of thorns or we have the eyelash of so-and-so. And it's like, how do you even authenticate any of this? This was told to me. And other people have heard it independently. But there, there is a saying that if you were to collect all of the pieces of the true cross, the cross on which Jesus um, was crucified... The Holy Rood. Yeah, you wouldn't have a cross, you'd have a forest of crosses. Yeah. The, the cathedral in the city I'm in right now has the relics of the cross. And of course, the first time I saw it was in Toronto, because the cathedral in Toronto also has the relics of the true cross. And when I first saw them, you know, it's like two toothpicks that are displayed in the form of the cross. Can these be verified? You know, some people have attempted. I I happen to be Roman Catholic. I believe anything purporting to be, you know, these items first and foremost are meant to help and to assist people's faith. So I think in a lot of ways it's... Does it matter? (laughs) Maybe not. It doesn't matter, but they will serve a purpose. At the same time, I'm not I'm not opposed to any scientific testing of anything. The Shroud of Turin is a relic. I don't quite know the status of the relic. It's even been verified by, by the church today, but they have right. done extensive scientific investigations of that. Very interesting. Some are held up to, to, to scrutiny. Others tend to defy explanation. So if there's a great saint who happened to be a speaker, a great orator, well, their physical remains, they might have a skull. The tongue is still fleshy. And that's believed to be evidence enough of sort of the miraculous in, in this saint's life. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It was the, I think, four cities in the Middle Ages said that they had the head of John the Baptist. Uh-huh. John the Baptist, because of his position in the church, is considered a real big saint and really important. And... Yeah kind of identified the head you know because he was beheaded well four churches in the middle ages claimed to have the head well how is that possible you know three of them had to be fakes you know you you have (laughs) to wonder who (laughs) is the guy who who was the first to get the idea you know what if i dig up that body over there could i make some money out of this i know black market of peddlers peddling these things to the gullible Especially on pilgrimage trips, yeah. it would be easy enough to dig up a finger bone. 
and to just take advantage of believers who were hoping to kind of get some sort of spiritual refreshment from this pilgrimage. They were just prime targets for this sort of thing. So yeah, there was definitely a black market. On that vein, I had just read this story that talked about this priest that was assigned to a poor parish and in this little mountain community of Northern Italy and was approached by the town council and they wanted to improve the lives of the population by bringing in, you know, money and tourism. And so they needed a relic. And so this priest sets off for Rome and he visits church after church and trying to find, you know, a relic that he could bring back to his community. And so he finally was approached by this swarthy looking character who asked the father if he was searching for relics. And he said, yes, my son, I'm looking for the relics of an important saint to take back to my village, but I haven't found anything. And he says, so I'm gonna have to go home empty handed. And the guy replies, well, father, this is your lucky day. It just so happens that I have recently acquired the head of St. John the Baptist. (laughs) And for a moderate price to just cover my expenses, the head is yours. And the priest says, but, isn't the head of John the Baptist held at the church of San Silvestro here in Rome? <laughs> and and he says, oh, yes, but the head in San Silvestro is the head of St. John as an adult. I happen I to have it. the head of St. John as I a child. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine that sort of thing just happening over and over and over. And yeah, it does, it leads to to modern day contention. There's an office at the Vatican that's devoted to managing relics. I think it was in the eighth century where there was a council where the Roman church decided that every altar had to have a relic in it. Oh. Think of all the Roman Catholic churches in the world. Yeah. Every altar has to have a relic. First of all, there's lots of saints. There's lots of holy men and women. I only know a fraction of them, but there's a lot of them. And then, you know, without being gruesome, although this is the place I could be gruesome, (laughs) you can cut and divide things up and distribute. There's a lot to go around. And also when it comes to relics, it's it's not just what are called primary relics. Primary relics are the physical remains. There's also kind of secondary relics and tertiary relics. So I referred to St. Martin of Tours. Well, yeah, if you you had the skull of St. Martin of Tours, a great early French saint, that would be pretty amazing. But there's a miracle. Actually, it wasn't even a miracle. It was just a, a great act of charity. He was a Roman soldier initially, and he saw a beggar lying at the side of the road, freezing in kind of the cold of kind of the the, the winter mm-hmm. and all of his fellow Christian soldiers were just passing this guy paying no notice and so Martin of Tours actually don't know quite his position in the Roman army but it was an officer and so he had a sumptuous cloak and he divides it in half and he hands it to the beggar well this act becomes so people were so caught up in the story that everyone wanted the cloak Mm. So much so that the kings of France sought his cloak. The word for cloak in uh, Latin is kappa. Mm -hmm. And a little cloak is kind of a capella. Mm -hmm. If you've ever heard of the word phrase, a cappella. So a cappella singing. It means the singing in the chapel. 
it, the word acapella means of the chapel, the type of music in the chapel. Well, the word chapel comes from the word cloak, which comes from this miracle of Martin of Tours. Wow. So the cloak, even though it's not a body part, it was clearly important in the life of St. Martin. So that's considered a relic. Items yeah. that might have been associated with a holy man or woman would also be considered adequate for use in altars. Going back to relocation of bodies, there was lots of reason you might want to relocate a body. Sometimes grave sites were under threat. If a city or a town or a district was at war and became overtaken by uh, people who didn't share your beliefs, you kind of worried. Think of the Crusades. There was a lot of yeah. concern that the most important relics of Christianity were no longer in Christian control, like the cross, like other relics. So there were concerted efforts to go and get them back and to relocate them. One of the strangest stories, in, in one of my Latin classes, I had a student, and I, I encourage all of my students, if you see Latin, on, on walls and books, take a picture, let's bring it into class, we'll translate it. We don't realize how much Latin influenced everything today, like you're just saying about chapel, like I didn't know that story. I, I know there's a million that are like that, that have to do with I Latin. I teach the subject and I'm still discovering, oh, is that where that word comes from? I had a student say, hey, Dr. Panessi, I have some Latin for you. Can I bring it in? I'm like, sure, bring it in. And he brings in this certificate, old, aged, frayed. It's all in Latin. And oh. then he has what looks like just a tiny little box. And so I'm like, sure, let's put this on the overhead. And I start reading it, and it comes from Rome. It comes from the Office of Relics. And this is the finger bone, or one joint, of, of St. James the Less, an apostle. What? And I'm like... Shut up! Wait a second. I'm like, what's that box? <laughs> it looked like a little chiclet box or a little gum box or, or you know something like that. That's seriously how what this looked like. He's like, oh yeah, this is the relic right here. I'm like, you have just brought the finger bone of an apostle into my Latin class, and he's like, oh yeah. I'm like, and immediately the skeptic. Immediately the skeptic is like, okay, there's no chance. First of all, this document looks super what? authentic. It's all in Latin. It's all aged. There's no way this guy could have fabricated yeah. it. I'm like, where did you get this? Where did you get this? Stop everything. Where yeah, did you get this? I study this? the Middle Ages, and I'm open to miracles and, and the miraculous and the mystical, uh, and I love that. But man, am I a skeptic. And so I'm like, where's your argument? Where's your evidence? Where's your citation? <laughs> right. I guess I'm a professor, right? And he said, no, my grandfather, when he was fighting in World War II in France, came across this ruined church, and there was a order of, of <sighs> nuns there. And they were responsible for kind of the upkeep and distribution and collection of various relics. And she was worried for the safety of them. And so she asked my grandfather if he would bring it over to North America and make sure there would be a safe place for them. Uh, I'm like, you have got to be kidding. To this day, what? I don't know if this is authentic, but man, if it is, I just think that right. is one of the coolest. I was, I was struck dumb. That's 
crazy story. I almost treated it like it was a ticking bomb. Did you say you need to take this to like the church? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, here, take it back. Get it to a priest. Get it to a church. Exactly <laughs> like you said. Take this away quickly. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and stories with us. That was really great. What I love about what I'm doing is researching and learning about the lives of people. And that to me is what's important is that each person that lives has a story and was important. And I think each person that I talk to and that I learn more about, it just, it's really fascinating. And hopefully it is to others as well. And <laughs> Anytime you want to chat again, I'm happy to come back on. Oh, uh, well, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate your help today. And it was really great to talk to you and appreciate all your knowledge. Yeah, nice to talk to you too. I find the practice of keeping relics a bit strange and macabre. It's always interesting to find out more about history, religion, and religious practices. The Middle Ages were a hard time in which to live, and they probably thought they could use all the help they could get. Having a piece of a saint might for them be the difference between having your requests to heaven heard or not. But I have to wonder if they would have preferred to rest in peace rather than in pieces. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners Thank you.